This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. It's December 29th, 2023. It's our last show of the year. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz and Roni Abovitz for This Week in XR. Uh, we don't have a lot of news this week, Chance. It's been holiday week. Uh, had a great time with the family. Hope you did too. I'm um, going to rush through this first part because I don't want to leave our great guest, Gary Shapiro, the CEO uh, of the Consumer Technology Association, uh, CTA, and the uh, head of CES for many, many years now. Gary is, for for one week a year, Gary is the most powerful man in the world of technology. <laughs> that is exactly right. Yes. So I'm I'm really yes. waiting to speak with him. He's a lovely guy. Uh, I was part of Gary's book club five years ago. Um, just an extremely nice and generous man who has uh, a very positive and nuanced view of the future. So he'll make a great guest. Um, news this week. Uh, you know, oh, by the way, we usually do an end of the year show. Yeah, uh, we, but is... but but you know, I it just you know, Gary came up as a guest, and and other things happened, so we didn't get to do it. Um, but uh, <clears throat> do you? I mean, what, what do you think? Would what was the biggest story of last year, other than AI? Uh, I think the rise and fall of the metaverse is I, uh, is maybe uh, a good one. Uh, do you have uh, any other one, Rody? Um, I, I think the Apple Vision Pro reveal in 23 mm. was was quite a news event, and it still is gripping like anticipation into 24. So it could rise, fall, rise again. We'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, there was an announcement this week, by the way. They're saying uh, end of January. Uh, I did want to bring up with you, Ted. Uh, I guess I'll do it right here uh, on the air, so to speak. Uh, but you guys are getting one of these, right? Oh yeah. Well, we will, so, we will absolutely, we are, you know, I mean, okay. So the strangest so, way possible. So once you get it, we can make an appointment for me to come to absolutely, your office. You for can now. come over and hang out. Yes. Of right, course. Cause I, I keep, Charlie, I keep never, asking. Charlie's not tried it yet, right? No, no. I'm, I'm the only person who hasn't gotten COVID and I'm the only person who hasn't gotten to try the Apple, <laughs> the new Apple MR device. <laughs> You will find it uh, uh, intriguing and fascinating in many ways. So last week we were talking about um, OpenAI making a deal with uh, German publisher Axel Springer. Mm -hmm. And this week the New York Times turns around and sues OpenAI. Yeah. What do you guys think? What's your, what's your, Roni, you, you know, you've got an interesting arc on this, right? So the New York Times could arguably be, um, argued as one of the most powerful media machines on the planet, right? In terms of its life as uh, a, a changeable and evolving entity that continues to uh, be relevant and important in, in modern society. Uh, and this was potentially uh, at least a minor threat to its existence or, or what do you think, Ronnie? 
Well, first of all, um, I know the the CEO of Axel Springer, uh, and one of the things that you could think about is that, um, you know, these are folks that go to Sun Valley, and that's an opportunity for them to meet people like Sam Altman. So it's possible that that a friendship arose and a deal arose because of that proximity through conferences like that. Um, I'm not sure the New York Times editor in chief or owners go to that. So there could be like the lack of of connectivity. Uh, creates these sort of animosities, but I think it's a, a sign of things to come. Well, there if you was look at the, the bolus of training data that feeds giant AIs that they've just been scooping up as if it's their God-given right to take that data. I think you're going to see lawsuits left and right, and when you just when you start to dismember yeah. it, it's going to be like Napster falling apart, and then you're going to have like the Spotify's that pay crazy licenses and have ownership with the people that own the copyrights, and then the whole structure is going to look different. I, I think we're at the beginning of the end of the Napster phase of AI. That's my take. I think uh, you hit upon the, the last piece you said is, to me, very relevant. The structure will look different. This is the early gestational days of new technology and a new way that people interface with technology, which we've seen over and over and over again. If you use the New York Times as a litmus test of evolving an entity that has evolved and succeeded and thrived, and found things like Wordle, you know, to, to become a new profit center and the way that they use online media. And if you remember and recall, the New York Times was part of, for a long time, the Apple News aggregator, and then left that aggregator to monetize on their own. So the Washington Post becomes the sort of main serious news aggregator for Apple, uh, the Apple News feed. And if you want New York Times, you need a separate subscription to that. There's um, there's one nuance here. There's one nuance here worth keeping in mind, which is apparently uh, the Times and OpenAI have been negotiating for months. Mm -hmm. So this is a little bit like um, Apple holding up Facebook and Facebook saying, take a hike. And uh, it just sounds like, I mean, this, this deal, this whole thing about models uh, and the rights of people who are building these models uh, to intellectual property is going to be resolved by the Supreme Court before the New York Times lawsuit ever builds up five miles per hour of momentum. Uh, so this this whole thing is kind of an academic. But, but Charlie, argument. let's say the Supreme Court should uphold copyright holders' rights. You're not talking about needing to get licenses from tens of thousands of like major and minor entities and millions of individuals. Or yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what the solution would be after that. Uh, and, you know, by the way, I mean, the, the genie's kind of out of the bottle, right? Speaking of Napster, uh, it's it's already been done. Yeah, I think strategically, you know, the folks at the New York Times that were sort of putting this together realized that if they don't take this moment, this threshold moment to actually put up, you know, stand up or go home kind of thing, that it'll be too far gone and they won't be able to technically or uh, sort of like, you know, within this, the kind of zeitgeist of what the world wants in the in their understanding of who owns what. So it's kind of like they've got to make their stand at this point in time and represent so that they can negotiate something as opposed my to- AI, like, My AI company is in Singapore. What are you going to do? You won't be allowed to bring it to the United States. I mean, yeah, you could steal I, IP <laughs> and patents. No, no, like, the, the, I mean, look, the US is going to have to figure something out. Do, do copyrights, trademarks, and patents have value? And if not, you're dismembering the last 200 years of our economy. Right. You either protect the Western value of IP, copyright, trademark, or you don't. But if you don't, you are throwing the entire system 
that's been built over hundreds of years. You can argue that maybe is a good thing, but like, is it something that this country wants to do or not? It's a very fundamental question. Yes, I agree. All right, let's bring in Gary. We didn't make him wait more than two minutes. That's better than our average. <laughs> We're excited to talk to him. It'll be an interesting conversation. Especially within just a few days of CES, which I know. Well, isn't that great? And we're so like it's in the air. I mean, it's every email I get is about CES this week. Hi, Brian. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, We're recording and uh, just uh, waiting for Gary. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Patrick with the CTA comms team. Apologies if this wasn't relayed. We're dealing with time differences. I'm actually in the UK right now as well. Uh, Unfortunately, Gary has a conflict. Uh, Gary Comiskey is so. Brian is going to be taking a place for Gary today um, as part of our research team and futurist in-house. I, I apologize that that wasn't um, uh, communicated. No, this is um, actually the first time we're hearing about it, but hi, Brian. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> and you're live. Say hi to our audience. Yeah, hello, hello. <laughs> yeah, this will make the most original transition to our guest segment in uh, 2023, 20, uh, but welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Uh, t- so tell us what you do for, and our listeners, what you do for CTA. So that yeah, we'll course. start there. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah. Like, why am I here? Um, so I'm the director of thematic programs uh, and futurists here at CTA. So I work in our research department. Um, primarily, I work in partnership with NASDAQ to develop thematic stock indexes uh, that track specific technology themes. Uh, so if you've ever invested in a sector ETF, in technology, the indexes behind it are oftentimes NASDAQ CTA indexes. But then my other part of my role is to track the trends that we're going to see at CES and how they'll unfold and shape not just the year ahead, but the next decade and beyond. So really just kind of trying to keep an eye on to tomorrow more than anything. All right. So, Brian, you're going to make a great guest. We don't need Gary. We got you. You're going to be better. <laughs> well, I, 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 I will do my best. I will do my best. Well, just because, you know, living under the covers uh, in in something that, you know, for us that sort of live inside the world of the of the Fang companies and all the associated sort of both good, bad and mess of all that and how they've you know risen to such a huge part of, of many people's investment uh, ideals and investment strategies, both the large fintech companies as well as individual investors. Um, that's an interesting role that you have. Uh, working on sort of delivering the research to all of those groups that then will make decisions based on that research. So you have a sort of a, an ominous responsibility, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's nice to be only have to be responsible for the qualitative side of the research, right? NASDAQ being a partner handles the quantitative and the measures yep. when developing that index. But yeah, I mean, we have about $10 billion in assets under management on in the funds that track our indexes, and they're global too, right? So we're not just looking at NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange listed companies. We're looking at global companies and keeping an eye on the space, especially like sometimes with an index, you have to require 50% of your revenue has to come from the space itself. So think about that in the context of maybe like cloud, right? That If that's a requirement, that means Amazon, Microsoft, not in the index because they don't get half the revenue from cloud. So you have to start looking at the other players in the space that might make it up. Mind you, our cloud index does include those companies. We don't have that threshold. And and this is this is a a profit center for the CTA because CTA is a nonprofit entity overall, right? But you use this to cover costs and and make it manageable and viable. Am I correct about that? So we're not for profit. This is a licensing agreement. So think about it this way: where Nasdaq is the one who licenses out the indexes to the exchange traded or mutual funds. We receive essentially a a revenue share of that. 
almost as if like a consulting fee in this regard. Um, and so, yeah, it, it does it does well. I would say that CES is by far and large um, what drives revenue at CES or CTA, I should say. This is a small little little vertical of that, but it's, yeah, it's another vertical. So, yeah. Brian, Brian, this is my thirty second CES. So I've seen some trends come and go. We talk about them on the show all the time. Uh, one of them, of course, we were just opining a bit, looking back instead of looking forward. Ted and I like to say um, we're not futurists, we're pastists. Mm -hmm. So before we project out toward 2024, let's take a quick, do you mind taking a quick look back at 2023 so yeah in january 2023 you could not stop by a booth at ces and not hear the word metaverse everything at ces was oh it's a tractor and it's connected to the metaverse <laughs> <laughs> so um this year it's inevitable of course we already know based mm -hmm. on the just press bombing that people like us get uh that this is the year of ai right you're not going to be i mean people were mentioning AI last year, but this year, every product we see, just like the consumer <laughs> the, uh, consumer electronics show became the consumer everything show, I think we're about to see the uh, AI everything show. Yeah. Um, so, but, but looking back, so we had the metaverse, I guess we had IoT before that, uh, there was VR before that. Um, can, I don't know how long you've been doing this, but can we look back a little bit, both on 2023 and uh, maybe a little farther back? Just for yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I think that's really important to establish concept because what you're getting at in many ways is hype cycles. At the end of yes. the day, so yes. for like so, just for full context, I've I've my first CES in person was CES 2020, uh, actually like right before the pandemic um, started, and I had been tracking as a media analyst actually uh, CES space, so I'm familiar with it for the past probably decade or so. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, last year everything was the metaverse, and I think a lot of that was right. Like this is the perfect example of the hype cycle, right? It was hitting the massive fever pitch before companies are certainly going to try and see how do are we applicable to it, right? But then, like anything in the hype cycle, you enter, uh, what's the phrase from Gartner, the trough of disillusionment a little bit. <laughs> and so how do you respond to that? And and I, I'm going to stay in the metaverse for a second, but well, I'm happy to dive into some of the other ones. But when you think about it, right, the metaverse is now, it's not that it's gone away. The innovation is still happening, but it's about defining those use cases, right? Because if you think about tech advancement as like a balancing act, think about like pairs of forces between consumers and enterprise. One is value for our consumers, right? They want the best value out of anything. Enterprises want growth, right? That's what they want from their technology. Then you have demand from consumers. You have productivity to meet it. Then there's the last pair of forces, right? Which is necessity versus innovation. So you had a lot of innovation for enterprise, but not necessarily a consumer, by the way, doesn't have to be an individual. It could be a business too, right? Because there's a lot of B2B. Necessity is on their side of it, right? So a lot of what's going on here is this sort of innovation getting a little bit ahead of how you do find the necessity. Tech advancement best occurs when you have a balance. And so now in 2023, you did see the flashes of what you'll see at 2024 with the metaverses, which is enterprise use case, right? So uh, Magic Leap, really good example last year, right? Talking about the Magic Leap 2 and the use of- Never heard of the company. I know, right? Never heard of the company. Um, I'm, I swear I'm not brown enough. 
was like, um, but uh, in this case, right, it's defining and using it for operating rooms remotely, right, for remote surgery. This year, we're going to see a lot of the digital twin technology focused on industrial metaverse applications from Siemens, right? Um, so looking at how to use on factory floors, Dassault is going to showcase a living heart, which is a R&D focused on advancing research for cardiac uh, disease, heart disease, right? So in that many ways, right, that's where you're starting to see, okay, we're looking at a necessity and we're innovating to meet it. That's, I would say, the metaverse story. You could apply that same sort of balancing act, though, to IoT, to VR. It's all about where are you getting these necessities and how is that innovation occurring? And it's a story of balance. Um, and I think AI is going to fit into that certainly this year. It's going to be- Brent, can I ask you a question? Because yeah. uh, some of- some of the whole, um, especially with you as an analyst, uh, all the discussion around all this stuff is how you define things. So how do you define metaverse? Because I defined it in a particular way that I think gets lost, but um, what's your definition of it? It'd be interesting to see like, cause you talk about metaverse separate from AI, separate from VR, separate from IOT, but how, what is it to you? Uh, so I don't think they're separate. I guess I should be clear on that. I don't think, to be honest, I don't think innovation occurs in silos advancement in any technology has to drag or bring along or push the other one, right? Um, so for me, I guess that's the question. From the metaverse side, I do think of it as, in a lot of ways, the next generation of what we would call the internet now, which is taking it to its spatial component where you're going beyond immersive audio and visual. But the key component in my mind is you're also creating immersive touch and bringing all the other senses along with it. That to me is a successful metaverse. Um, or at least that's the end state. But technology innovation, right, is two paths. It's revolutionary or evolutionary, right? Those revolutionary breakthroughs like igniting fusion in the last year, right? That's pretty revolutionary because it launches a field forward. I think the metaverse is going to fall into the evolutionary, which is those iterative cycles where you build and you incrementally improve to get to the end state, which is how I would define it there. I'm curious what you define as the metaverse, right? Because this would be the ultimate question. Well, let me, uh, <laughs> I want to I throw a little levity into this and then go into something sort of serious that relates to this. At the end of the this. year, we need to have some fun, right? I'm going to have a little levity here and then, and then move it into yeah, something that- Let's not seriously, though, go down this rabbit hole of defining the metaverse because- No, but here's, here's a good little piece of CES levity that I think you guys will enjoy. And then we're going to ask a serious question that I think, Brian, I, I'm very curious how you relate to this. So- I have a, a, a test, like a Turing test of when something uh, in the world of that shows up at CES has, has jumped the shark. And if I see three categories that associate with this term, I know it's over. Basically, it's my frying pan, toilet, hairdryer test. And if I see a frying pan that is the frying pan of the metaverse, a toilet that is the toilet of the metaverse, and a hairdryer that is the hairdryer of the metaverse, I know it's over. Last year at CES, guarantee you there were those three things there because we were there, right? This year, it's going to be interesting to see what the test is for AI. What are the three most ridiculous things? And it's probably going to be a frying pan, a toilet, right. and a hairdryer. It's, it's a, a rice cooker. Rice cooker. <laughs> rice cooker is another good one. Yeah. All right. Let's let Brian comment on that because there's actually a serious theme under that that I think is important, but it's just fun to have a little, because CES is actually a joyous, fun time to experience what people are thinking about and how they're moving consumer goods, consumer durables into the world of technology, right? Which is different than a lot of other shows and a lot of other conferences. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing to have you comment on. 
Yeah, of course. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Joyce because that first off is that's how I have always viewed CES. Like for me, like growing up, like when I think about technology, I associate with things like Epcot. Um, I associate with even like the World's Fair of Chicago yes. when you learn about, it, right? Like Zipper was invented there, right? Um, and then I think about like the, you know, the science fiction elements, like the Stark Expo. So to me, like that's like in real life what I get to go do it like every year, which is fun. But I guess you're getting to the point, which is like you're seeing where there's this idealistic belief in, well, how can we use the technology trends and themes of the day to underpin even the smallest of innovation or in the most unexpected ways, right? Mm -hmm. So in this case, the toilet, the frying pan, we have seen smart toilets. Uh, that was a thing that Absolutely. was last year. <laughs> and it made sense because a lot of it is, well, a lot of your health is determined by your gut. And so having a, maybe AI on board to assess what is going on in that case could actually help you improve your diet. I, I generally know, but okay. Yeah. But that's a great that's a great perspective that you're taking something that seems farcical and you're actually making the point that technology sort of bleeds into what we do as humans all the time. And if you look at like the perfect technological outcome of that, you know, you look at the Toto toilets from Japan, they are technological marvels, right? That absolutely show up at CES every year with the next new thing with 85 different buttons and it's $24,000 and there's a market for that, right? And it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible, <laughs> right? Well, there's like an amazing South Park episode, by the way, of um, the Japanese Toto toilet. If you've never watched it for our listeners, it's fantastic. Uh, and I love the fact that you mentioned EPCOT because for, for the listeners that don't know, EPCOT stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. It was Disney's vision to build a society, like a, a utopia. And of course, after he passed, it turned into another theme park, which was commercially viable. But CES is, you're right, a lot, I never really thought of it in those, those terms, but it is a lot like EPCOT and the World's Fair and mm. the re relation to how we learn about new things. I think yeah, you know, I, the World's Fair is a really good way to characterize it. The, yeah. the other thing is, you know, and I mean, you know, and CES has developed, you know, this whole country pavilion theme over in Eureka Park, which was a really smart thing they did about five or 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and and it makes it easier for me as a writer to to see what's going on. So uh, that was thoughtful. And that's one of the good things. CES is, you know, CTA has been doing this for a long time. They are very, very good at putting on the world's biggest trade show. Uh, I, I will say this. Uh, you do get a good feel, as you said, Ted, for what's coming this year, right? Generally, what you see, if it's new, it's going to be a Q4 2024 product. Right. These are not things that we talk about that are here tomorrow. But you remember I did this whole thing on um, smart glasses becoming phone accessories, low cost phone accessories. We saw that at the show on Moss, right? But probably 10 companies exhibiting the same concept or application of the technology. And lo and behold, every story in XR for the past 12 weeks or 10 weeks, eight weeks has been about these low cost wearable screen reflectors right. that view XR and the wearable as an accessory that you use for, for media consumption, and then you remove it, right? It's yeah, not so an all-day, everyday thing. It's a, I'm in a cafe, and I'd rather uh, play a, a game on a what appears to be a big screen than right. in you know a six-inch screen in my hands. Yeah, so, CES often, see if you agree with this, Brian, gives us a, a little bit of insight as to what consumers will actually uh, adopt as a category, will actually start to look at and potentially buy in their local consumer electronics store or their local big box store um, or online. Yeah, so what's, um, yeah, what is that for 2024? That's what we want to know. 
Yeah, and I guess that's it's it's the bellwether, right? Of yeah. what we're gonna see. And let's actually like so actually let's go with an example that I think is is relevant to what you're talking about in smart glasses, but also brings in the AI portion, right? So at CES in North Hall, you'll find Essilor Luxotica. They are the Italian yeah. group that owns the, the meta, right? Like, the meta partner. And right. And so we would expect to see the Ray-Ban meta there to talk about AI on board in your smart glasses, right? Because what makes AI powerful, the reason why maybe a little bit where everyone's trying to latch onto the metaverse being a little bit more of a difficult play is metaverse in a lot of ways, while integrated to a lot of uh, other technologies, is kind of almost like a vertical, right? You are like to a degree going top to down in terms of a, a value chain of the technologies and hardwares. AI is what I would call horizontal, right? Where the whole premise is it's supposed to cut across every industry vertical to make it more in a, more efficient. And this is where you're getting a combination of, well, if Ray-Ban is getting involved, it's onboarding the AI features, but what's the other portion of this? It's a stylish and chic form factor that looks nice. And they're not just doing it with AI glasses. Another important trend I think is going to be big this year is what, what I would, me and my colleagues would deem inclusive tech design. And a really good way to think about it is they're going to be as uh, Laura Exotica just made an acquisition of Nuance Audio. That's hearable solutions that you can put into stylish glasses that offer discretion if people want it, but also increases the market in terms of hearing uh, assistance, right? And that's going to be a technology design that permeates across the show floor as well. We're already seeing things like wheelchair modes on um, Garmin smartwatches now, because before you couldn't track steps or cardio if you were in a wheelchair, right? It's thinking about addition more than anything and not subtraction from the market. So when I think about that, that's the type of stuff that I'm watching for is what are those trends that cut across every single category this year? And it's going to be we're looking at a more intelligent tomorrow, a greener tomorrow, and a more inclusive tomorrow is how I'd say what you're going to see on the show floor. Rody, I've got a couple of, uh, uh, Brian pulls on some interesting threads that'll lead us down a more serious topic, but I want to give you a chance to go down some of the questions you might have, Rony, before I but do that. Brian, could you just double click on the inclusive? Is that sort of like the wheelchair example? Is that what you're thinking? Uh, not just that, though. Like, So we're going to see, uh, so yes, certainly, yes. But like at Eureka Park, for example, we're going to see a company that is focused on an app that allows women to walk home safely in cities, right? It's designed by women for women. Or another good example is there's a software as a service uh, talent acquisition platform that's going to be a CS. That's whole goal is to try and increase underrepresented communities in the working profile, one of them being in formerly incarcerated individuals, right? So thinking about how do you add on and build more into your market and or how do you use tech really to make sure no one's left behind in that regard? So that's sort of what we're getting at. It's beyond accessibility, right? Because I think with when you go to like wheelchair applications, you think accessibility, but it's a little bit more, not just about who's using the technology oftentimes, but it's a question of who's developing it too. And how are they developing it to reflect themselves a bit more or to reflect a larger pool of people that would use it? Interesting. Um, so I've, I've been reading a lot uh, with regard to the upcoming show about uh, developments in displays, uh, you know, wireless TVs, uh, foldable screens, foldable TV screens. Um, so um, I'd like to hear your uh, perspective on that category and whether that stuff has got real utility for consumers. And then, you know, what are the other categories in addition to screens uh, that, that are going to make a lot of noise? 
Yeah, of course. So in this case, right, we do know that there's been kind of a teasing of a lot of concepts of foldable screens. I, th I think TCL and C-Speed are two brands that are, are, are sorry, C-Seed um, have been talking about the foldable form factor screen, right? Um, and so I guess this is more the idea of like flexible viewing environments speaking to it. But I think the larger theme in displays is actually what is kind of pun intended as we're moving from like high definition to redefinition um, in a lot of ways where the whole TV is really starting to, I think, get into this place of as the intelligent home hub or the command center, right? So Displace, who brought uh, the wireless TV last year, this year they're bringing, you know, new wireless TVs with uh, landing gear to prevent it from falling. But the thing that they are really bringing that's driving the space forward is they're going to have AI on board shopping and e-commerce and payments systems on board, as well as thermal cameras to conduct telehealth appointments, right, from your TV. So adding more features, because when you think about it, right, the, the penetration rate in the U.S. household for a TV now has just slipped behind the smartphone, but it's still over 90%, right? What would make more sense to have a connectivity of all these features of intelligence in your house than the place that you're already gathering around as a family oftentimes, right? So that's, I think, what is going to happen in display. More I than thought I... that I thought that was an interesting point. You mentioned sensors indirectly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is, of course, what Meta has done. You know, I mean, they've always had this stupid camera that nobody uses and takes terrible pictures that is a pain in the ass to get onto your phone and onto the app. Um, but they've actually found a newer, better use for it, which is as a sensor. Mm -hmm. And for AI to work, of course, it has to have some spatial understanding of where you are and what time of day it is and, you know, all of the kind of obvious parameters of, of, the, of the wearer at that given moment. Uh, so do you think there are other ways sensors? So you mentioned sensors getting embedded in televisions. Where, where else do I think there's a company actually also called Meta that is putting some kind of sensors in fabrics? Yes, that's correct. So yeah, sensors and fabric. So that's like, we've seen this at the show. Um, I'm trying to think of who is going to exhibit in this case. But Adobe, I have seen right? They have a project with a dress that, that has is all censored. Intelligent clothing. That I mean, that is a huge thing, especially we've seen it. And where did it start actually at CES is in the last few years, we've seen it. It started in the accessibility space, right? Especially for mm. keeping on board yes. for remote patient monitoring yes. to for fall detection. Um, so I'm sure we'll see the continuation of that. The other place, to be honest, where I think about sensors, like my mind immediately goes is the fact that, like, you know, we're one of the largest auto shows, but we're arguably the largest mobility show, right? Because we're not just cars. We are ta flying taxis. We are <laughs> boats. But when you think about where sensors are going to be, you're going to have companies like Luminar, Mobileye, that are showcasing the advancement, right? This is that evolutionary iterative cycle of, well, how do you push forward sensors for autonomous mobility, right? And so that's where I think, when I think about the sensor story, that's the place where I like to go to. I'm also looking at what the semi-play is going to be like in relation to that too. And so NXP will be in Central Plaza for the first time. I'm curious to see what they're talking about. And same with Qualcomm and Intel. They're going to make AI hardware a massive focus in the sensors behind it in their keynotes, as well as when they're discussing with uh, in their exhibits. Okay, so let's let's go down a, a a somewhat daunting task for you, which I'll be very interested to see how you think about this as an organization, how you work through this as an organization. The way I look at the evolution of this trade show and many trade shows is 
there are companies that have built success using certain trade shows. And very often these companies get very, very large, very, very important in and of themselves. Let's call them self-important. And then they choose to ignore those trade shows that in many ways have helped them get there. So if you look at, and this yeah, is maybe going back to Look at Microsoft, look yes. at Google. Well, if you Apple look at- Apple doesn't go to CES really. Correct. So you guys are dancing down the right da dance here, right? So if you look at the largest companies on the planet, the largest company on planet Earth, arguably the most successful company on planet Earth, they left the idea of the CES trade show many moons ago. Now their ecosystem exists in mass at CES, all the, the, the secondary, tertiary, you know, X And their execs are all over the place. Yes. Um, so the ins and the outs, right? Apple is largely out. As I remember for years past, and I think I'm 25 years CES, not quite as much as Charlie, Google has largely been in outside. They have kind of almost a theme park sort of, talk about Epcot, theme park it's sort branding. of presence at CES. It's, it's branding, but they often like Amazon, uh, or at least in the past, had a side room for their yeah. hardware. Yeah. So, okay. So you get the question, right? I mean, yep. where, what is CES's take on these large fang companies, uh, you know, multi-trillion dollar valuation mm -hmm. companies and how they use and maybe abuse CES and the CTA? And do you find that you have to navigate that constantly? So, so just when to they be, leave you behind, do you leave them behind? Just, just to be clear to the listeners, what, what, what Ted is saying is companies like uh, Microsoft build up their branded CES for 10 years, then they start their own developer conference and they say, well, we really don't need CES right. anymore. And uh, often these are very, very high dollar clients. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's a, that's the ultimate question, I think, in the tech event space in general. I think you see this across the board with any trade show. Gaming is another one that comes. Yeah, to we mind saw E three has gone away now, right? Because completely packed their mm -hmm. packed up their tent and gone, which was a huge, huge trade show in Los Angeles for many, many years. Yeah, and so I think about it this way. So yeah, Google is there. Amazon and Microsoft all have presences in just in different fashions, right? right. Amazon has presences in three different ways: in auto, a business, and then that side, right? Yeah. Well, they have a hardware easier. business. Exactly. And they cater themselves in a lot of ways to what they think that they're going to get their business done. Because that's really the utility still of CES in a lot of ways is that the average executive has around 27 meetings in those four days, right? So it's where business gets done. So that's your first utility there. But when you think about it, we're at about 4,000 companies are expected or for 4,000 exhibitors are expected at CES. And so even if you have some of these larger companies that say, hey, we're going to you know, do our own announcements independent of one another's, in my mind, that creates the utility of those smaller companies, especially 1,200 of them are startups. And Eureka Park, which we've been talking about with the international pavilions, that is a pretty strong place where you can say, well, now we have a larger degree of movement to make some of our announcements that can maybe catch fire and, and get some pretty amazing coverage or some of the deals that we need. I know Shark Tank's gonna be at CES, for example, and they'll be walking that portion of the show floor. That's a lot of room for them to run in there. Oh yeah. So I guess that's where, when I think about when you have the challenge, it's, it's always a dance and, and I'm in the research side. I'll, I'll be very clear. I, I don't I weigh in on those, those decisions and the long-term strategy, but as an analyst in the space, it's something that everyone thinks about. Mm -hmm. um, but those companies still come. And as Charlie pointed out, those executives are still coming in the background because that's where they can go and find sure. the deals. Well, let, let's talk about Eureka Park for a second, because I think that is our, like, uh, certainly for me, that is my reason, my specific reason to go to CES. Mm -hmm. 
all the big stuff I kind of know, right? And it's fun to go and see all the big TVs and all the mm. well sort of laid out, very classy and, and you know overblown budgets of big companies demonstrating their consumer products wares. But the real action is kind of what I would refer to as the flea market of CES is Eureka Park, because these are companies that have very little funding, right? So it feels like a flea market, like you're packed in there. They're all in little eight by 10 booths, most of them. Some have little larger booths, but there's not a lot of frills. There's not a lot of fluff. They're really getting down to the action. And it is usually packed. Like it is wall well, in to 20 wall to, In 2020, you could not walk through there. Yeah, it is. 2020 was a people. crazy year, right? There was over 150,000 people there. Uh, I think even last year, because of the pandemic, International was down. But it looks like, based again, just on a sample I get by email, it looks like it's going to be back this year, probably yeah. way bigger than last year. Yeah, I'll, I'll interject really quick too, right? So it was like around like 172,000. My first yes, yes, I mean, that was sick. <laughs> yeah. So we came, so last year we had about 100, I think it was after auditing, it was over 115,000. I want to say closer to 18. This year we're tracking for, and obviously we'll know because we audit, right? That's a big part of what we do. We have an independent auditing company say, this is the attendance. We're tracking for 130,000 attendees right now, right? Jesus so we Christ. are- yeah, we're coming back. Like we we're back. Uh, yeah. I guess that's it's not we're coming back. We're back. Um, and Eureka Park is. Uh, I'm glad you guys all enjoy as much as I do. Is what it sounds like too. Because for me, uh, we we've mentioned it before. That's the spirit of Epcot. When I saw the International Pavilions, that's immediately what it evoked for me. It's yeah. very. There is something. There is something that is inherently. Uh, you call yourself past this, and I think I actually really like that because there's something inherently nostalgic about looking to the future, right? Yeah. And so that's what you get in this area. And so like to kind of describe to folks, it's you got the international pavilions, you got um, a lot of US government agencies as well there or US or international universities. And so really like a third of our attendees at CES are from outside the United States. And so this is really where you're seeing this international exchange of ideas. And that's where you're gonna see, you're gonna run the gamut, right? Like you will see things like, uh, I saw. I I know for a fact we're going to see AI solutions that analyze your healthcare records to reduce the amount of time, detection time of risk of infection after surgery. Right, that's one. You're going to see. I know there's a concept that's going to be there that's converting sound waves into electrical energy. Right. So it's everything. Like we talk about, like you took where it's the consumer everything show and more things. It's not just the consumer part though. There's the enterprise solutions, yes, sure. and that's a huge part of it. I know in right. those big booths, so at the convention center, companies like LG and Samsung are going to be un unveiling, or especially LG, I think, pretty significant advancements that pair in the enterprise side. Right? Yeah, there's there's always a few big companies that surprise mm -hmm. us and show us, but mm -hmm. you know, in the Eureka Park world, like I, I and I assume uh, uh, Charlie and, and Roni will too, we gravitate toward like for me, I gravitate toward the Israel Pavilion because there are so many. Israeli innovations. It's un, it's sort of mind-boggling how many things come out of that small little little strip of desert in the Middle East that have literally changed the world over and over again. Uh, and that's just one, like Japan is another one that sort of brings mass amount of innovations and have this interesting kind of culturally relevant presence. Um, but Israel yeah. in particular is kind of a remarkable CES success story of things. I think that you you shine. could also you could also look to Korea in that yeah, context. Absolutely. I know they yeah. have a big pavilion this year and it sounds like they actually have a lot of um, uh, innovation that is relevant to uh, our category of XR and AI. 
Certainly. Yeah. And uh, in that case, uh, when we're thinking about it um, in kind of this, this overall theme, my Korea is a major one, the Netherlands and France too, not to yes. they have a significant presence. And what about China, like China proper? Oh, good question. I was thinking about uh, this too. Yeah. What, what, cause you know, they, there's a weirdness between China and the West and like, have you seen a decline or the same number of Chinese companies and in, in governmental presence at CES? Cause I mean, there's such 20, a 2020, there was a lot. And then the past few years, not so much. Yeah. I mean, I think we still see a significant amount of Chinese companies that are exhibiting on the show floor. Um, I know Alibaba is going to be in the North. Also, we're going to have some of those giants out of there too. In a lot of ways, I, I ultimately write regardless innovation happens everywhere in the world and it results from the conditions in which it arises from it from each individual nation so it and that way right that's what ces is a platform for in general it's companies who have this innovation are ready to come there so china will have a presence there because they are innovating and they are pioneering in a lot of ways but to ted's point you have countries like israel and you have we'll have ukraine there yeah. too with uh showcasing innovation so in a lot of ways, Korea has, I, when I think about like the largest presence, I think it's Korea now that has surged into being, having the largest um, from an international presence. And, and that also makes sense, not just from a tech innovation standpoint, but I'd be remiss when we talked about TV, if I didn't talk about content evolution too, in general, right? Because we have C-Space. We've talked about the Venetian Expo and we've talked about um, the convention center, but there's a whole other show floor in the Aria and Cosmo that's focused on content in marketing. In Korea, in terms of the power of K-pop, in terms of Korean language um, cinema, is a huge presence mm -hmm. of that. Um, to be frank, we just are more multilingual or at least pushing for universal libraries that are more international. Netflix is coming back to the show floor, actually, in Central Hall, and it's to do an immersive experience. So they're trying to do that immersive experience around the three-body problem, which was a Chinese novel, right? before it became adapted so in a lot of ways it's this diffusion of the cultural element too across the board because i think it's recognizing that we're in a much more pluralistic and diverse society yeah. that is a great point and a great way for us to end the show um thank you brian for coming and uh, help sharing with us some uh, philosophies and some observations and some nuances about ces we'll be talking about it more next week um, but for now uh, that is our show everyone have a great week and uh, we'll see you in las vegas